0: Many of us have heard about the tyrannical lockdowns and the measures that Australia took during COVID. I have with me here today, Hannah Penaluna, who is a midwife and was practicing midwifery there with the indigenous people in Australia. Due to her not complying with the mandate to get the injection, she fled that country and came to America. She is here now in Northern Georgia, practicing and in her own practice. And we are going to hear what that was like, as well as what it's like to give birth at home. Here in America, I learned that Midwifery is practiced throughout most of the world, but here in America, it's hospitals um, that the women go to. And because of COVID, uh, we have seen so many people wanting to have home births. So we're gonna have a great discussion today. We have our tea, Uh, it's tea time. (laughs) So welcome (laughs) Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. I think you're just amazing. Thanks, Jody. Well, I'm super excited to be here. Yes, please um, start to talk to our listeners and tell us what okay. it was like during COVID and what happened for you um, to have to flee the country that you loved. Sure. Yeah. So I
1: um, have lived in Australia ever since I was 22. I grew up on the mission field. So I think that I, already had a very different worldview having grown up in third world countries um and just Mm. I guess uh had a real respect for certain freedoms that we have and and expect after like growing up in in that kind of lifestyle so I moved to Australia when I was 22 um met the love of my life and had four beautiful babies beautiful home births myself and I never really saw myself ever leaving if I'm being honest. And uh, even when uh, the pandemic hit in 2020, we didn't really think anything of it initially. Like so many people, we were um, just unaware of what was coming our way. And my husband and I were both essential workers, government workers. So he um, was a public uh, high school teacher, And I was a midwife. And if you know much about the health system in Australia, you'll know that it's kind of like England, where like you have the NHS, it's socialized medicine, right? Mm -hmm. So I was actually employed by the government as a midwife. That was my role. And I had always worked for the government in some capacity as a midwife ever since I qualified um so the way things w- went down were kind of different and of course we were essential workers so you know th- at then the pandemic was the opposite we were at work more
0: <laughs> right
1: <laughs> he was at work more doing virtual um you know classroom and i was at work more doing every kind of uh, extra shift that i could um and so we were living in a very small island called thursday island which is up near papua new guinea but it's part of australia Um, really interesting Indigenous, um, like, culture. So it's actually a Torres Strait Islander, but um, not Aboriginal, but there are Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders, so the Indigenous people of Australia. And we loved it. We lived in a small island, and we thought, oh, well, this is great. Like, nobody up here is getting sick, right? Until we were, like, confined to this very small island. So it's, it's, Mm. you know, um, this island has a population of 2,000 people. And, you know, it was five kilometers I'm not very good with miles but five kilometers around the whole island if you you know were very small around, a very small island you didn't even need a car on it and so we thought it was all great until we realized like oh like we can't go and buy shoes at the closest major city and like oh no so you were left. locked down on the island we were locked down on the island and I worked in um different communities right so i would travel between thursday on and the cape so if you know australia on the right hand side of australia and you look at sydney and then go up north to brisbane and keep going up north to Cairns, where the great barrier reef is and keep going up to the top of that you'll come to that point of australia and i was the traveling midwife that worked in those communities up on that right hand point of australia and i had to get permission from the different mayors every time i needed to do, run a prenatal clinic or you know um And it was just really bizarre like i was the only i I would go across on the ferry which was usually filled with you know over 100 people and there would be two people on the ferry a a doctor a general practitioner and me and um and getting permission so that's kind of what it looked like living in remote australia so we were considered a vulnerable population so we had biosecurity measures and so um yeah so Fast forward to 2021 after dealing with those lockdowns in 2020 and, um, you know, just the fear in that that was really uh, that they really um, instilled in the indigenous people, you know, was really, really sad to see because these are people who They've always traveled from community to community. They're their families, their cousins, they, they are very like transient population, they go walkabout, you know, like they go and visit their cousins and stuff on this island and that island and that's just what's normal for them and then that all came to a a halt really Um, sad to watch. Um, We actually got separated from one of our children who was living away at boarding school and we decided um, once 2021 or the end of 2020 rolled around that it was probably time for us to move back to the mainland that our idyllic um island life was coming to a close and that for our children's sake you know now that things were getting back to normal we right. should move back to the mainland, and so we did.
0: So, um, so did it start to feel a little normal in twenty twenty one? Did
1: it? It did in Australia, except from Melbourne. So we were watching Melbourne and going, "Oh, I'm so sorry that you live there," type thing, and we we're having this mass exodus from Melbourne, uh, from Victoria. All the way out to uh, Queensland because it's warm and sunny, and people were allowed to go outside. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, if you're going to be stuck at home, you may as well be stuck in your backyard outside, you know, (laughs) whereas in Melbourne, like the weather wasn't as nice. So, yeah, so that's kind of like what it felt like. We got back to uh, the mainland and it felt like a little bit normal, like nobody was wearing masks and stuff. Fast forward to 2021, and um, what was happening was. If you had say gone into uh, a coffee shop in the morning and you had bought a coffee and somebody else went into that coffee shop in the afternoon and the next day they tested positive for covid you would be have to isolate
0: for 2 weeks at home and you would So how would they know? Work. How would they know if you went into the coffee shop in the morning?
1: One they were forcing everyone to check in but two they also knew based on where you had spent your dollars, right? Because there was
0: no Stop. cash. Time. Wow. They were yes. tracking it on your card. So they yeah. had access to people's bank account
1: information. It's hard to know. I know that this was happening in Melbourne. Um, It's, it's hard to know because, um, you know, you didn't question it. Like I was working in the health system. So you would get a notification that you had been somewhere where uh, there was a case and they would put out this publication, like you, were, if you were at Kmart or a Target or all these different places and you now have to like isolate. And so we were like, okay. And so it just got to this point where nobody went anywhere. Like if you, if your family lived down in Brisbane, even though you lived far away and you lived remote, you just wouldn't go and see them because it just wasn't worth it to miss out on two weeks of work unpaid.
0: Right. A lot of people
1: couldn't afford it either. So that's right. what it was really like. <laughs> And so, and then on top of that, the state borders were closed. So occasionally they would open um, at the end of 2020, and then they'd be open for two weeks here. And then there would be a case and the state border would be locked down and there would be military involvement at the state borders, military and police at the state Mm -hmm. borders. So it would be like, you know, say, I don't know, from where I live, Chattanooga is closed. So but that's Tennessee, and we live in Georgia, so you can't go to Chattanooga. And even if you work in Chattanooga, you're not allowed to go. Because if you go to Chattanooga, you have to stay there. That's it. It's over. Mm-hmm. You can't cross state borders. So that's what, it, that's what it got like, and everyone just accepted it. And so we didn't go anywhere. We weren't allowed to go to funerals anyway. There was numbers capped on places like church. Like For instance, you had to register to go to church, and once they reached the cap of people that were allowed in the building, you couldn't go anymore.
0: Wow. Now were then were the natives getting sick that you were taking care of? No,
1: nobody was. We had um you know drills and um ventilators that we were all supposed to know how to use. And I just remember thinking every time I got called to a drill look, I do babies. I'm not going to do airways like it's not my thing. Um so I would go along to these drills and go I'm not going to use it. I'm mm-hmm. Not going to use it like, this is not what I'm going to do. And truthfully, like, I mean, I wasn't there when we had our surge in early 2022, because quote I, had unquote.
0: Already,
1: I had already been, um, I think it was about a month before I was terminated at that point. So, oh, and we
0: can go into that a little bit more, but, um, basically, yeah, let's, by- let's touch on that. Let's touch on, yeah. uh, because I, I remember when you and I met, you you know you told me that midwives um, they go to their home and they they you know do home births. That is commonplace in Australia. Almost everyone, well, right?
1: No, no, it's not so common in Australia, but we do like home visits. So a lot of the women, it's still probably less than one percent of women will choose to give birth at home. But we have birth centers mm-hmm. that are are funded by the government. Double edged sword, right? So a woman can have a more natural birth in the hospital than what they can here. We have so, birth centers that are attached to the hospital. We have midwife only care. Every woman has a midwife. In
0: Australia, every woman. Yes, every Okay, woman. let's talk about that because I think that's pretty fascinating. Okay. Mm-hmm. We don't have such a thing as labor and delivery nurses, right?
1: We don't have them. It's not like anyone who works in labor and delivery, or we like to call it maternity in Australia. We don't call it labor and delivery. That's considered a very outdated term in Australia. We always say that pizzas get delivered. Babies are born. Okay. <laughs> and that language matters. So you don't call it delivery and um, you don't need to be delivered from something you're giving birth. And it's a perfectly natural process that we were designed to do so in australia we don't have labor and delivery nurses we don't have labor and delivery we have maternity and we have midwives that staff the maternity unit at the hospital every woman has a midwife in labor whether they're high risk or not okay so if a woman is high risk then she will have a doctor come and consult in her room as well and sometimes be there for the birth depending on high, how high risk it is and obviously for c-sections because that's surgery you have a doctor and a midwife attends to take care of the baby right and okay. so midwives do everything over there so you know back in australia when people would ask me what i did for work and i'd say oh i'm a midwife they'd go oh oh my gosh, I loved my midwife. I, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful. I always thought that I would become a midwife one day and, you know, but it's just so much work. And, and so, so I was like a mini celebrity when I would talk about being a midwife here, when I'm a midwife, it's like, oh, I
0: think my cousin might've had a midwife. <laughs> right. You're like, what is that? What exactly do you do? So essentially, I mean, if we're going to simplify it in Australia, it, the, the, we have nurses, labor and delivery nurses and doctors, right? The we midwife don't have is both. I mean, A midwife is not
1: a, under an ob-gyn a midwife is a separate discipline to an ob-gyn a midwife works under a director of midwifery and an ob-gyn works under a director of obstetrics okay we don't answer to them we work alongside of them in collaboration together
0: together but
1: they're not in charge of us Mm -hmm. so the idea here that a labor and delivery nurse like because nurses answer to doctors right Nurses work under doctors, whereas midwives are considered autonomous practitioners. It's um, it's a completely different discipline. Yeah. And we're trained to work autonomously. We're not trained to work with doctors. So when I studied at midwifery school, there was a medical school, a midwifery school and a nursing school all at the same university.
0: Okay. And that,
1: it's not some kind of like renegade radical midwifery movement. Right. <laughs> it's just seen as normal. Uh-huh. And it's seen as a beautiful discipline. And yeah, so that's what's is the what training midwifery- like? The training is rigorous. Um I, I I don't know what nursing or midwifery training is like here, but the training is rigorous in that um, it's a three year degree, uh, but it really should be four years the amount that they pack into it. And you are doing, say, three hospital shifts or three, um, whatever, wherever you work, because you get trained in hospital, home birth, and birth center
2: okay. in Australia
1: so that when you graduate, you can work in all areas. You are a midwife. You don't need to go and get extra training to do something else, mm-hmm. and so and that's really wonderful. And so, uh, so some some students worked in home birth for, uh, during their student experience, and I did a few home births in my in my um, my student life. And then you do two to three shifts in the hospital so that you in hospital. And then you're often seconded to a birth center and you do an X number amount at birth in a birth center so that when you graduate, you are competent in all the things and how to do IVs and how to suture and how to take care of complex, high risk pregnancies and how to, but midwives will always be the specialists in normal birth and it's well known mm-hmm. and that is publicized and that's what we do we take care of women who are not sick but who are going through a normal life event
0: a normal life event i love how you said that and and you just reminded me of your um presentation at our nursing conference is yes. is it's, it's a normal life event like we have made this so complicated you know it's like you yeah. have to go to the doctor and even when you were talking about you know when they say oh it's a high risk birth You know, you should go to the hospital and and give birth and and you you have an opinion on that as well. I do. Well, I you know, when are we
1: ever going to let women just be you can have too big of a baby, too small of a baby. Um, preeclampsia is something here. I talk to clients and they all seem to be like, oh, with my last pregnancy, I had preeclampsia. And so I go, okay, let's unpack that a little bit. Come to find out that they had like one or two high blood pressure readings. Nobody checked if there was protein in their urine. Nobody did a blood panel to see if their liver function tests were deranged nobody checked to see if there was kidney involvement. I mean, preeclampsia is a multi organ. So to come to find out that they got super anxious because they were dealing with something, went to the doctor, had one high blood pressure reading. Next thing you know, they're being sent up to the hospital and being told that they have preeclampsia. And I'm like, well, I don't think that that was (laughs) preeclampsia. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Then there's aging placenta oh, it looks like there's calcification on your placenta. So, you know, this is now becoming a high risk pregnancy and we need to do something to intervene. Mm -hmm. And then there's a ticking time bomb of being high risk. If you're over 35, because now you're, you're too old to have a baby, but if you're too young, then Mm -hmm. you're at high risk of preeclampsia.
0: Like, I don't think women can get it right anymore. Okay, ever. I I want to <laughs> share a story with you that you haven't heard. So, okay. I I had my my first son when I was 16, so very young. Oh, and you then, were high risk then, Jody? Yes, Carpet I was for high risk preeclampsia. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> and then I also his due date was 2 days before my 35th birthday with my last son, Benjamin. Okay? And at that point, I, you know, his father and I, you know, we had discussed it and I said, I don't want any test. Um, I don't want to know, you know, do genetic testing, whatever is to be is, is to be, and I'm okay with that. And so my mind you, I am not a nurse at this point. Right. And so I don't know much other than, you know, giving birth twice already. That's it. So yeah. I go to the OB and they draw blood work and all of that. And I tell them, I don't want any genetic testing done, I'm not doing any of that. I don't care. Well, they did. And yeah. then they told me that, um, that I was a high risk pregnancy because now I'm geriatric because his due date was two days before or two days after my 35th birthday. So because I'm 35 now I'm geriatric pregnancy and they proceeded, I had to get ultrasounds every week. Okay. For my whole pregnancy. And, and, and it, so, I mean, it's kind of cool because I I do have the video of seeing him grow. Right. What's the long-term effects, Jody? Like, how do we know
2: if that's told me?
0: Yeah. And so they told me that I, that, um, Benjamin would be born with trisomy 13 and he would not survive long after birth. And then at 30, 34 weeks, 32 weeks, something like that. Um, I went to a geneticist and we had like a four hour visit of, you know, just you know, counseling and education and, and talking about like my history and then them doing this long ultrasound and stuff on him. I come to find out that that was completely fine. There was never any real indication for them to have to put me through that for my whole pregnancy. I, and, you know, like I said, granted, I had already talked to God about it. Like you know, whatever's to be is to be. And, and so I never really had any fear. And now he was born eight pounds, five and a half ounces, 21 inches long. He's 13 years old, almost six foot tall, size 13 in men's shoes. And here's my baby that was supposed to have died at delivery. You know? Oh, 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 I think it was because I, my, um, my water was too much. I had too much and oh uh, in, uh, Too much amniotic fluid. You have too much amniotic fluid. You have too little amniotic fluid.
1: You, I'm telling you, Jody, you couldn't have gotten it right if you tried. Yeah,
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. And it's it's bizarre to me because one of the things, and this goes back to the COVID thing, this was a huge alarm bell for me. One of the things that we got taught at university was that you never play a dead baby or a dead mother card because that's not informed consent, okay. right? coercion is not consent you never ever so um you never ever do that to someone because if you make a woman afraid to say no it's not informed consent this was the pillars of midwifery that we learned in my degree if you make her afraid to say no it was never informed consent so you never tell her that she may die or that her baby may die you tell her what are the risks What are the risks? Which I still would say, okay, well, what is the chance of that happening? Rather than saying, what are the risks? Because risk is still very, you know, Mm fear-inducing. And the moment that I got pulled into my manager's office and she said to me, and I was I was treated very respectfully in this whole process, but when they realized that I wasn't gonna comply and that the time was ticking closer to that deadline of October 1st, 2021 when I was going to be suspended. Because you didn't take the injection. Because I didn't take the uh, COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. When I got pulled into my manager's office, she said to me, Hannah, it's not good news. And I said, "I, I wasn't expecting it to be good news little did I know just how bad the news was going to be (laughs) and I didn't find that out for a few months later but she said to me you know they said that you'll be suspended you'll go through a disciplinary action process um, eventually you will likely be terminated blah 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 and I said at the very core of what we knew and what we were taught to be true in midwifery we believe it's not informed consent if you make me afraid to say no and you're making me afraid to say no right now because I will lose my livelihood. I will lose my career if I don't do this. So you're making me afraid to say no. So this is the very pillar of what we know to be true in midwifery. And how will I continue to practice if I comply and I look at myself in the mirror and I know that I didn't do for myself what I know to be true and what I have to do for my client? It's not right. And she agreed with me. She agreed with me. But, you know, that was the the pillar is like, it's not informed consent if you make her afraid to say no. So you being told that your baby was going to die. I mean, the, the risk of you having a baby with trisomy 13 or 18 or even trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome, at 35... At, I mean, the risk is still low, the chance, I should say, mm-hmm. to say that if you don't have this genetic testing, you're going to have a baby with trisomy 13 that's not compatible with life. And your baby will die. End of story. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah.
1: I've seen women who have been in their 20s have a baby with trisomy 18. This is a God thing. And this is why, um, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But truthfully, Jody, you were never going to get it right. And that is why I'm so passionate because... I will say, you know, now for our listeners, I I work 100% in my own practice as a home birth midwife. I very much work in a parallel health system, and I'm not sorry about it, and I would never go back, right? Um, But I do know the difference between a well pregnancy and a pregnancy with a mother who is sick. I do know the difference. And what I hear from most women who believe they had a high-risk pregnancy is that they were not, in fact, high-risk at all. But they believed it to be true, and it was frightening for them. They were um, they were coerced into doing things they didn't want. I mean, really, like we think this has all come about just in COVID times, but we've been being groomed for a very, very long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And were you just awakened to birth. that? Yeah. Did you know, know? Did you know oh. that, or did COVID help that process?
1: No, I was awake to it from, I was awake to it in my own pregnancies. I was awake to it. um, My mother chose to have home birth. So like I said, I was already aware when you look back over the history of midwifery and where routine episiotomies came into place and twilight sleep and all those things from, you know, um, like when they brought birth into the hospital from home, you know, because you'll meet people whose grandmother and great grandmothers gave birth at home. But, you know, in the, the, um, I can't remember the exact dates, but, you know, as time went on and they brought in this twilight sleep. So women didn't have to feel pain. They just slept and then their baby was born. And this is great, you know, and then in the the sixties, I believe when routine episiotomies really came into play. So I was awake to all of this. My mother had us at home. So I was awake and I very much walked into midwifery knowing that I was working in a model that was substandard, but I also believed in making change, advocating for women, doing what I could do. I mean, you did too, Jodi, as a nurse, right. Right? right? You do what you can do. You're well aware of the corruption. Um, it's not something new. I mean, maybe when you're at university, you bright eyed and you thought you were going to help everyone. Oh, yeah. But truthfully, Truthfully, you're not there to save people. You can't save them, but you can have empathy and compassion and give them good care with your clinical skills. And that's what I was there for. But as time went on, I was like the very pillars that I practice under, I am now being asked to do things that, that I would never do to a client, to myself. And I can't reconcile that. I can't look. I can't go to bed at night. Like I can't. I can't continue to practice and tell a woman that she has options when I haven't allowed myself options. That's right. and,
0: And I think that was a big issue too, where we have now. It's like if if nurses and doctors stayed in, you know, in the hospitals or in medicine, and they were coerced to get the injection and they did not want it. How can we trust the them, if they cannot honor their own autonomy, how are they supposed to help us honor the patients, right? And the people that come in. And when we come back, Hannah, I want to touch on that episiotomy and the twilight sleep and, you know, the epidural, because, you know, for me, when I gave birth to my son in 92, no, 91 in 91 women and I don't know if it was just because I was young you know but my my um my family members uh they were getting the epidurals and for me I felt like it was too new and nobody was coming near my spine and I just did it naturally uh so I'd like to talk about that um, as well so we'll be right back
2: it's time and this see- is
0: Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally.
2: Hey everyone, Nurse Kimberly Overton here from Nurses Out Loud. Over time, our cell signaling molecules diminish, leaving us vulnerable to the wear and tear of life. With the of redox, you can restore and revitalize your body at the cellular level. This is an incredible product that I personally use and can attest to seeing fantastic results, including better sleep, increased energy, improved mood, and a decrease in my joint pain. ASEA supports your immune system, enhancing your body's natural ability to repair itself. It promotes overall well-being so that you can experience a new level of vitality and resilience. It's time to take control of your health and experience the power of ASEA. Visit our online store today at americaoutloud.shop and use promo code OUTLOUD to save 15%. Be sure to tune in to Nurses Out Loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern.
0: We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutLoud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the
2: challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations.
0: In the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back. We are talking to Hannah Penaluna, who is a midwife. And um, Hannah, I would like to touch base on uh, the standard of care. Right? The standard of care for a woman that is, um, you know, about to, you know, have a baby when they go into the hospital and all of these things. You know, we touch base on the episiotomy and the twilight sleep. Let's talk to our listeners about that in general.
1: Well, thank goodness that the twilight sleep is no longer a thing, right? We—that's not something that we do. We have our own version of it nowadays, which is called called the epidural, which is where you know the idea is that they inject a solution into the is it subdermal space, and so it goes in between the vertebrae. You know, the, the, uh, an anesthesiologist comes in. And they're highly trained and the idea and they'll say things to you like the risk is very low. You can get spinal headaches. It doesn't increase your risk of C-section, but it does increase your risk of an assisted birth, like a vacuum extraction or something like that, which I would always stand there and kind of like laugh to myself because I thought, well, if. A doctor can't get the baby out with a vacuum, then what happens? You have a c-section. So, by default, if you have an epidural, it does increase the risk of c-section, and that's what we see as midwives. Mm-hmm. So, um, with the epidurals, you know, is this rise of like women shouldn't feel pain, pain is bad, and that's simply not true. If we um, are cheering on or we are training ourselves for a marathon and somebody was running alongside of us the whole time going, if you feel pain, you can stop. You don't have to keep going. Don't be a hero. Like right. we would think that that was incredibly unsupportive.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: But truthfully, like, I mean, pregnancy and birth is more normal than running a marathon. A marathon right. is something that you have to train for. And I would say, to give right, to your mind, but we are designed, like we are created to do this. And our body actually knows how to do this. And, you know, what we've come to realize is, and what you will realize, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, Jody, is that once you make one decision, like in pregnancy and birth, it leads to another decision to be made.
0: Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so people like to call it the cascade of intervention. I, I like, I hate calling it a cascade of intervention. It sounds so negative, but truthfully, like you make one decision, you'll have to make another. If you just sit with the discomfort of what your body knows how to do and that it's like allowing your body to heal when you're sick. Yeah. Like and instead of choosing to take a ton of pharmaceuticals that mask symptoms, like When we are sick, we're we get told to rest and allow our body to heal because it knows how to. Yes. Our bodies know how to get pregnant. If we can get pregnant, if you can get pregnant at 45, you can have a healthy baby. Mm -hmm. This idea that our body can do something, but then it doesn't know how to do it.
0: Right. Right.
1: It's, it's it's ludicrous. I mean, the same things. And I, I know we, we, you mentioned that you probably wanted me to talk about this as well, but the same thing goes on with what happens at birth. So, you know, antibiotic eye ointment, which is they only do that here in the U.S. They don't do that in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And most women go, oh, antibiotics at birth. That sounds good. Antibiotics are good. My baby might have an infection. Well, no, you're, the risk of your baby being born with an infection. I mean, at the hospital, the risk of them getting an infection just for being born at the hospital is high.
0: That's right? right. Yeah.
1: To think that your baby is born with an infection in their eyes. And most women don't know the reason why that antibiotic eye ointment is given at birth is because they might have become positive for chlamydia. And that could cause blindness and serious complications. And so every baby, rather than continuing to test women throughout their pregnancy, for chlamydia and gonorrhea, they just give every baby eye ointment, antibiotic eye ointment in case they have it. Wow. You know, it's it's such a knee-jerk reaction. And they don't do it in the rest of the world. And the rest of the world does have chlamydia and gonorrhea. Yeah, so it's and just it's such not a bizarre.
0: Even, it it's not even um you don't even ask the mother if they want it. You just no. do it. And I'm going back because I was in float pool, and I used to work in um, pack and um, postpartum, and you know, and have to, oh, you God. know, uh, yeah. Now I'm going back, saying like, <laughs> "Oh my gosh, what? Was you I didn't question it? it? Why? I wasn't questioning all those it. babies with the glistening eyes, and you're going, wait, what?
1: And like the idea that a baby is born vitamin deficient at birth." The mm-hmm. idea that we need to supplement our babies with vitamin K because our babies are like, so God designed babies to be deficient in vitamin K at birth. And we got to do something about it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, Like our babies are born usually healthy and well, if they're born sick, okay, do something about it. But to say that every baby is deficient at birth, well, mm-hmm. did God make a mistake like, are we doing something wrong in our pregnancies that makes them deficient? Because God certainly didn't create us deficient from birth. Right. Like, It's just a very bizarre. And and then you look at the hep B vaccine and that is, that's right there with the eye ointment, you know? um. So like the hep B vaccine, I don't know if you've done much research into it, but that came about for very similar reasons to the antibiotic eye ointment. So Women at the beginning of pregnancy, they don't realize that half of that OB blood panel that they do is like STDs that they're being tested for.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: you're being tested already to see if you're Hep B positive, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And then you get to, um, and then you get to birth, and so they've already said you're Hep B positive. But this is the thing: the Hep B vaccine came in because women were being sexually promiscuous in pregnancy and were converting to Hep B positive, and rather than testing. Them all again. They just introduced the Hep B vaccine
0: for everyone.
1: The idea, the idea that our babies would be exposed to a bloodborne disease mm-hmm. at birth. I mean, that's ludicrous, right? Like, yeah. And if the mother's not Hep B positive, like, what is it going to be a nurse that's bleeding all over your baby that's Hep B positive?
0: Right. Right. It's
1: like, it's just, it's just, that's all I'm going to say is like, we really need to be informing women and arming them with information so that they ask questions. Because you know, my rule is, I also don't go the other way and fearmonger women into not having these things if they believe they want them. Okay. Right. Yeah. You give the women the information, and then they make the decision. You know. So the idea from me and the very pillars of my home birth practice is that I want women to be well in pregnancy. And then I want them to stay well. And I want their families to be well and to thrive as -hmm. they should, because the whole thing is a normal process. It's God designed. There's no mistakes in it.
0: Right. And And, you you see so many women. No, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No. And I'm not going to pretend that I've never, ever seen an abnormal pregnancy because birth is normal, normal, normal until it's not right. And women Mm -hmm. do get sick. And babies can be born and get sick and there can be high risk pregnancies. And that is very difficult. But the idea that every single woman has a high risk pregnancy
0: is complete lies. Mm -hmm. There's just another way to describe it. Yeah. So let's talk about the process. So let's just say we have a woman out here or grandma listening and, you know, or, you know, Ho- a soon-to-be grandma, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, maybe my daughter, my daughter wants to have a home birth. What's the process? A woman becomes pregnant. Does she have to go to the OB, or can she just call up the midwife first? She does not have to go to an OB. So <laughs> any good midwife
1: knows how to do an intake and a complete personal history. I hate calling it a medical history, right? But personal history, and that could be medical history as well, if they have a medical history of note, you know, that, that matters. So they come to the midwife and I always say to women like vet your midwife, vet me, like ask me questions. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't go to doctors, but we should, because you could be hiring Dr. Death and you wouldn't even know. We don't go to doctors and say, okay, how many babies have you lost? How many mothers have you lost? You know, like talk me through like, what's your risk of C-section, but we should, yeah. Like, and so when a woman comes to me, I, if they don't ask me the right questions, I coach them in it. And I'm like, okay, first of all, don't just interview me, but interview other midwives, ask them where they receive their qualifications. The process of midwifery here in the U.S. is completely different. So most home birth midwives here were only trained in a home birth model. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a bad model at all. But, uh, you know, I guess I liked that in Australia, we learned all models. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I see it as benefit, you know, if I do have to transfer to a hospital because one of my clients has become sick and I have a very low transfer rate, you know, um, but I know how to communicate with the hospital staff. They respect me. I, our lingo between Australia and here is slightly different, but most of the time they understand like, you know, I can speak in acronyms. I can um, hand over and transfer care and I can be a respectful participant in a conversation, Right. Um, and they generally respect me, but yeah, you want to vet your midwife. You don't want to know how many births they've done. You want to know where their experiences came from, where their training came from. Cause it's different here in the U S than it is in Australia. Um, so that's important, but no, you do not need to go to an OB and get permission. Like this yeah. is the whole thing, right? Like you are taking responsibility for your own care. If you know that you are healthy and well, go and see a provider that promotes healthy and well pregnancies.
0: So how often do you see the, the woman, you know, um... it's
1: It's very similar to the medical model in that, you know, you start with like four weekly appointments, so monthly appointments then you move to bi-weekly appointments and then you move to weekly appointments, except for you're not getting an ultrasound and fear mongered and coerced at every appointment. You're having conversations about nutrition, um, hydration, um, Uh, taking care of your body, sleep, good quality supplements that can support your body in areas that you might be deficient. Um, You know, a a lot of it is social. Like, are there marital problems that are causing stress in this pregnancy? Do we need to refer to a counselor for those? Because that's midwifery as well. Like you're Mm -hmm. looking at the family in a holistic way and saying, how is this supporting this pregnancy? And is it causing stress? Or is this pregnancy well? And that includes mental, emotional, and spiritual well being, as well as the physical well being. It could incorporate a mother's cultural practice. You know, indigenous women, they would birth with the tides of the ocean. So I would literally come in to take care of them and they're like, oh, no, it's low tide. I'm not going to have my baby yet. And then they'd be like, oh, it's high tide. I'm going to have my baby soon. And they would.
0: <laughs> right. so You're they like, were just
2: <laughs> wait they were
0: what? they were they were very in tune with mother earth and their body they were. Yeah. And it,
1: it, it matters because their their cultural practices are deeply in their food chain everything comes from the ocean that's where they live they live on an island and it matters to them it's important high tide is what they believe low tide is ugly and stinky you don't want to bring a baby into that Oh, you know you want to birth your baby when it's high tide and it's beautiful and you can you know nourish yourself with and catch fish and you know mm-hmm. all of that it's 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 wild but women do have certain cultural practices and I will ask them do you have any cultural practices that you need to let me know mm-hmm. um for certain aboriginal women they had uh communities but I I have had On families that have to sing their baby a specific song at birth, (laughs) because that's what they do. You know, it's important to them. Or they will, um, I don't know. You know, a lot of my Christian families will pray over the baby at birth. And I do have a lot of those. I do advertise myself as a faith based midwife, and I don't make apologies for that either. You know, mm-hmm. I can incorporate into my practice. I no longer work for the government. They can't tell me what to do. My clients that hire me come to me because they know I care about all aspects of their well being. Right, um, which
0: is so important.
1: And I care yeah. about mine too.
0: I care about
1: my well-being and being their practitioner. I take care of myself. I take care of my marriage. I take care of my children. Because if I don't do those things first, then I'm not a good midwife. If I sell my soul,
0: then Mm. I'm not a good midwife. Oh, I like that. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, we, we touch base on that about the autonomy. I mean, it's, it's, I, and I, you know, I felt the same way as a nurse, you know, they are like, how are you happy? Or, or you're always smiling. I'm like, because I take care of myself. I work when I work, and then I travel or I do, you know, what, what brings me joy. And so when I'm here, I'm, I'm completely here and I love it. And I'm going to be the best nurse that I possibly can for these 12 hours. And I'm not yes. going to bring my outside, um, you know, issues and hopefully I didn't have many, um, or I got rid of those issues <laughs> say, uh, but yeah. What do you think about, so first of all, I have a couple of questions. One, okay what is the percentage of women that say i need an epidural call the ambulance i'm going to the hospital i actually have not had one yet since
1: i've been in practice in in the us
0: how many um births have you have you done here so i would probably be coming up to about 40 so out of 40 women not one has ever wanted to go to the to the hospital. Yeah. What kind of tips and tricks do you do to help alleviate um, the birth pains?
1: Well, first of all, we're going to look realistically at the situation, aren't we? Like we're gonna we're gonna give education about like how to train mentally and physically for endurance and resilience.
2: That's going to for- be the
1: first most important thing because when it takes you by surprise. That's Mm -hmm. part of it. Like we get told pain is bad. Pain is bad. Pain is bad. But when we start to talk about why do we have this discomfort, it's because we're bringing a beautiful baby into the world and that's a difficult process, but the reward is huge. It's like running a marathon. And at the end of it, you have this huge sense of like euphoria that you completed this insurmountable task that seemed so impossible to you. And birth is no different. Like you look at it and you go, how am I going to get that baby out of me? You know, I right, right. think that's just going to be easy, you mm-hmm. know, like parenting is hard. It doesn't just end like when you give birth to your baby, like the hard part is only just starting, right? Like you're, you're going to have to go through hard parts of parenting, you know, forever. You're a parent.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. How it yeah. Works. Well, and it's interesting too, because when we have generations of women that give birth in a hospital, you know, it's like we're, we are disconnected because I remember when I, um, when I had my son and I was there in labor and I'm like, oh my gosh, nobody told me that these contractions were going to hurt more than pushing, you know? Yeah that, that was insane, intense. Um, I literally just focused. I I did Lamont's class uh, prior. So I was prepared with the breathing and, um, and I just was like, I'm not getting that, uh, that uh, injection in my spine. Right. And so, but then I remember too, when I would needed to push and I just said to my mom, I said, Oh, I feel like I have to go to the bathroom, and then she runs out of the room, and she's like, "She's ready," and I was like, <laughs> "Ready for what?" You know? How um, did you know, Mom? Why, why did not you tell me that that was going to be the sensation that I was going to feel? Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. so, yeah. First of all, we have to have education, and part
1: of that education is talking about people go in and they think, "Oh, well, it's not going to hurt to have an epidural. Like, it's gonna, it's not, it's not going to hurt." If I have an epidural, I can give birth and it won't hurt me. But truthfully, like the epidural blocks our natural hormones that are required to give birth. So I just had a woman today call me and she was like, this is my birth story from last time. I want it to be different this time. You know, in retrospect, all these things happen. And she was telling me how she felt so overwhelmed and exhausted When she was giving birth that she was like i i have to fix this and then she told me that she got her epidural she had a 30 minute nap and she felt like a new person and she assumed that she felt like a new person from the 30 minute nap then she went on to say but then i didn't have enough contractions so they had to start pitocin yes and i'm like well that's not a surprise because the very drugs that are in epidurals are a smooth muscle relaxant and guess what your uterus is a muscle so if you tell your muscle to relax when it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be contracting we're going to have a problem.
0: Yes. Then we have
1: to give an artificial hormone to replace what we just took away from you. And people don't
0: realize that they don't, they don't. And I was in there with my daughter and that was the most horrific experience. Uh, one of the most horrific experiences I've ever witnessed as a nurse, much less the, my daughters on the table And, um, and her delivery was going great. Her, her contractions were going great. Everything was progressing. Then it started to get hard. And I was like, you know, honey, we could do this. We could do this. And then the nurse who was actually a friend of mine who went to, I went to nursing school with, I even pulled her aside and I said, please do not talk about an epidural. Just don't. She she will get through this. We'll get through this. And they went in the bathroom to get on a ball. And the next thing I know, my daughter was like, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. And I was so pissed off because after that happened, her delivery slowed down tremendously. It virtually came to a halt. She, you know, went had to get on the Pitocin and then the delivery. Oh my gosh. Like they had to pull him out with forceps. Um, I, and he had a student doctor there that was running the whole thing. And she told me, she goes, mom, if you're going to be here with me, you cannot be a nurse. I need you to be here as my mother. And I said, fine. But I was about to lose my mind on this doctor. He had about five seconds, five seconds before he pulled that, that student doctor out of the way and took control of the situation, but it, it was horrific. And so, yeah, I think education is huge because if she had someone like you, right, you know, talking to her, preparing her, letting know what the environment's going to be like, the, the environment that you're, you guys are going to create together to bring this, you know, baby into the world, all of that, and they can visualize it and see it and work on their breathing. It would have been a completely different outcome. Well, and and not just that. So we need education, but we also need to make
1: sure our body is in alignment so that we're fueling our body. So this idea that we send women to the hospital, they're not allowed to eat and drink. They have to be tied up to a drip. It's like your body needs hydration and fuel to be able to do a hard job. Like if you train for a marathon, you are given huge uh, education surrounding how to fuel your body to do hard work. And yet then we tell mothers they're not allowed to eat because it's a risk in case they go. To, so we've already prepped them for yes. the OR at the very beginning. And now they have no energy to be able to do a job that is hard. So, you know, we talk a lot about how we're going to fuel their body during labor so that they can have energy. We, when they do feel overwhelmed and exhausted, we, we, Make the room darker. We coach them through. If they're really uncomfortable and they need some relief, we put them in a warm bath. That's very comforting. We put them in a hot shower with the lights turned off and leave them alone with their husband. And we let their hormones work, right? Mm -hmm. If you get a sensation that you need to go to the bathroom, you don't want to be around people because you need to go to the bathroom. So if you have that sensation in labor, which everyone does because that's the sensation. You're not going to want to have a bunch of people around. It's like, oh, she's ready. Call on the team. She <laughs> feels like she's, it's the worst thing that you could do, Jody. Like yeah. you need people who you could take a crop in front of. Right. And that is only going to be someone who you trust.
0: Right. You know,
1: it's even then it's going to be hard. But it's going to be better than it could be oh. having a whole team. So it's completely different. I, I mean, I, I walk women through some hard labors that I know. One previous experience would have been a c-section several times over okay. and they they get the baby out and the baby's well and they are well you know if they're not well i transfer them because i recognize that there's a time and a place for medical involvement and i involve it involve them when it's needed and indicated because that's 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 good i i i hate to say patient but when they have become sick and they need transfer they are a patient but otherwise they're my client i mm-hmm. i'm walking alongside of them i'm coaching them you know
0: What's the percentage of women that come to you, and we only have like two minutes left, but what's the percentage that come to you that say that I was high risk, I had a C-section, but I want to do a home birth. Um, Do you, maybe not the percentage, but do you take those cases?
1: Oh, yeah, probably I would have about 90% of them. But when I sit down and break down their story, we come to find out that they weren't high risk.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Right. So I
1: would say about 90%. I don't actually take on high risk patients that are actual, legitimately high risk, but I Mm -hmm. know where the boundaries are with that. So I would say about 90% because I do have a lot of first-time mothers that come my way. You know, I love
0: starting mothers strong. So um yeah, that's the truth. Yeah, I love that. All right. Anything else you want to add? I I I know we could talk for hours, but Hannah. I know. will have to have you I on just wanna,
1: again. I want to <laughs> really talk about midwifery and maternal health as like a public health initiative. You know that okay. that if if we don't get it right at birth, then we're going to see this rear's ugly head all the way throughout this person's life. Right. So mm-hmm. I just feel so strong about starting motherhood strong. And I would say to every woman out there or who's listening, who's mother or whose daughters or nieces or Talk about birth and encourage them. Talk about it like it's achievable. Um, Tell them the good stories and encourage them to seek out a, provider that is supportive, that will walk alongside of them and doesn't see them as a case that needs to be managed.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I remember my mom told me, she goes, it's the hardest pain that you'll ever feel, but the easiest to forget. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought that was beautiful because, you know, if you did remember, you would never do it again. <laughs> But, guys, you're, this is Nurses Out Loud. Uh, send us an email, uh, nurses at If you want to hear any more um, uh, information or tips or tricks from Hannah, uh, nurses at Americaoutloud.com. Um, We are five nurses that are brought together, bound by ethical principles and on our mission to protect the heart, souls, and mind of humanity. The last three years have changed us in many different ways, and evil has ran rapid, but it has been exposed. We want to empower and encourage you to do the same. We are in a war for truth, and we're putting out a bounty on the real misinformation and exposing the purveyors of propaganda. Join us weekday with a different nurse host daily. No topic is off limits as we shine our light and expose the darkness. It's time and this